I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. Two weeks ago, we started into a new section of the book of 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning meat offered to idols. And he begins a three-chapter discourse about Christian freedom. Especially in this passage, he's dealing with whether or not the Corinthian believers had freedom to eat meat which had been formally offered to an idol. This was a controversial subject in the churches of Corinth. And so Paul begins to lay out different principles for the church to consider, for individual believers to consider, regarding whether or not they should eat the meat. Uh, we've covered two principles so far. Two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 in the morning and the evening service, and I laid out the principle of love, the principle of love. Perhaps that visual from the evening service will remind you a bit more about the passage. If you remember, Paul in chapter 8 is basically arguing that we must consider our brothers and sisters in the Lord even when we make personal choices of freedom or liberty in Jesus Christ. And so we learned a lot in that passage about the weaker believer. You remember this? Shake your head if you remember. Weaker believer. Okay. So we must consider weaker believers even when we make personal choices. Last week, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 through 23. And uh, in that passage... Uh, we talked about another principle of Christian liberty. I called it the principle of sacrifice. Or the point that Paul is making in the text is we must not do anything that hinders the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you look down in your Bible at chapter 9, verses 1 through 23, you'll notice that Paul uses his own example as an apostle. He argues very early on in the chapter. He says, I am an apostle. And then from that, he says, I have certain apostolic rights, specifically the right to lead about a wife in ministry or the right to be married as he would travel as a preacher. He has that right, but Paul didn't use it. He also had the right to financial support, but he didn't accept money from the Corinthians. So he learned that Paul was an apostle. He had these rights, but that he wouldn't use those rights because he valued the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the application to us as a church was, uh, just like Paul, we have certain freedoms that we should not fully exercise at all times so that uh, we might see the gospel advanced with the lost and other people. You know, as we looked at these two passages, as we look, consider these two principles I've got for you this morning uh, from the last few weeks, I want to ask you a, a difficult question. I want to get you to consider it for at least 30 seconds this morning. One of the, the questions I like to pose at this point of the sermon uh, would be, um, if you had to choose between honoring one of the two principles that we've already talked about, which one would you choose? Or another way of saying this is, if you were invited to a party by an unsaved host, and you were engaging in things that were genuinely amoral, okay, uh, by that I mean you are at no disadvantage if you partake in it spiritually. You look in the Bible, there's no verse about it that says it's wrong or whatever, but you're at the party, the unbeliever and yourself and the people there are engaging in something that is amoral, but then someone comes to you, another brother or sister in Christ in this church, they come to you and they say, 
my conscience will not allow me to do this. Who would you choose to prefer? Would you prefer the unsaved host and continue exercising whatever freedom it is, or would you choose to prefer the weaker brother and sister in Christ? And I want to do something a little bit unconventional this morning. Can we do that? I want you to turn to your neighbor and just gut reaction. Would you prefer unsaved host or your weaker brother? Okay, if you don't have a neighbor, say it to yourself. Okay, I just want you to just... This is my gut. Gut reactions can be wrong, by the way, right? We can fix it later. We say, this is what I would do. I would prefer, I would prefer the unsaved host to the weaker brother. Go ahead and just tell your neighbor five seconds. Do that for me, please. You got to say something. You cannot choose neither. And you cannot choose, I'd pull the fire alarm and get out of there. Okay, that doesn't work either. So y'all you, have to choose something, okay? Now, what I would like to do is I'd like to see if your initial gut reaction is right or wrong. I'm gonna actually lay out for you what I think is the best answer to the question. Now having said that, I've, I've been doing this for a while, and the first time I ever did this, 90% of the Christians in the room disagreed with me. Okay, so good people can see this question differently. If you disagree with me, we can have fun talking about it privately later. You can take me out to eat this week or something, uh, and we can do that together. Okay, good people disagree, but let me make a case let me make a case that you should, well, I'm not going to tell you what I think you should prefer yet, but, but let me say this. A possible or a good answer might be, well, I would take the weaker brother aside and begin to ask him a series of questions. If you look at the chart there on the left, I'd ask him why. Why are you offended? What biblical reasons? And, and try to determine the nature of the, the offense. You know, it's at the party, you're at the party, you go into a closet, I can see you taking the weaker believer in there. Yeah. Are you just like offended with me or is this going to cause you to fall spiritually? But let's assume you can't do that. And there are scenarios where you can't always do that. I want to suggest that it'd be, it'd be best for you to prefer the weaker believer. The weaker believer. Let me give you a few reasons why I think that is the case. First of all, because love is the identifying mark of followers of Jesus Christ. In John 13 and verse 35, Jesus says, By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, and what is the identifying mark of being a follower of Jesus? If you have love one for another. Okay, so love should define us as, as believers in Jesus Christ and as a church, and when the lost see us, they should see us loving even when it is hard or difficult to do so. I invite you to turn over to chapter 10 for a moment. I'll answer this question this way. You know, the, the scenario that I presented to you with the party and the unsaved host and the weaker believer who's there, I think that's roughly what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. Look in your Bible at 10:27. Paul says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner, when we get to chapter 10 in a few weeks, I'm going to suggest that this dinner is in the home of an unbeliever. I'll try to prove that to you, but I can't right now. If if one of the unbelievers invites you to a dinner and you'd be disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Whose conscience? I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined 
by someone else's conscience. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? I mean, Paul's asking these questions, but he paints a scenario where there's a weaker believer who says, don't you know this has been offered to sacrifice to idols? And it's obvious that his conscience won't let him eat it. Paul says, do not eat it for his sake. So if you're put in a scenario where you have to choose between an unsaved host and a weaker believer, I think Paul's answer would be prefer the weaker believer every time. To be honest with you, this goes against my initial gut reaction. Initially, I think stuff like, you know what? The believer's already saved. Jesus has already accepted him. What's the worst that could happen to him? He's already in. But the scriptures would seem to say that I need to love my weaker brothers and sisters even more than I would an unsaved or lost host. The third reason is because of Galatians 6.10. I'll just read this verse for you for the sake of time. Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, right, to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So in a Christian liberty context, Galatians 5 and 6, Jesus, or Paul, I'm, I'm sorry, Paul sets the priority, do good to every person in the world, but especially do good to those who are of the household of faith, or especially do good to believers. So uh, in a scenario like this, and hopefully we will never have to choose, but in a scenario where I've got to prefer one or the other, I think it's the weaker believer. I mean, sometimes navigating life situations in matters of freedom and liberty can be really trying and difficult, right? It can be hard. And for going to love in the way that Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it's going to mean that we're going to have to die daily to ourself. And that's why the third principle that I'm going to introduce to you at the end of chapter 9 is very important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul lays out the principle of self-discipline. Look with me in your Bibles at 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. If you look up in your Bible at the last statement of verse 22, you might be tempted to think that Paul is lawless or an undisciplined man with very few guiding principles in his life. Look at the end of verse 22. Paul says, I become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Say, well, if that's like his guiding principle, then he can maybe just do everything. Well, that's where the parenthesis of verse 21 right before it was really important, where Paul says that although he's flexible in how he reaches Uh, reaches out to people, ministers the gospel to them, he is still bound by something. He's bound by the law of Christ. Remember us talking about this last week? He's still bound by what Jesus said and what Jesus did uh, in how he related to the lost. And so uh, there you would see it. But if you still did not recognize the fact that Paul's commitment here is to proper behavior 
verses 24 through 27 will be especially helpful for you. Because in these verses, I would describe Paul the Apostle as a man under control. He was not without his limits. He was not lawless. And he even imposed guidelines upon himself so that he would not fall or be disqualified. In chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, Paul is going to illustrate the nature of self-discipline in a Christian's walk in two ways. I think the text is very parallel. I'm just finding this recently. It's very parallel. It's easy to follow. But in verses 24 and 25, Paul talks about the discipline of athletes. And then in verses 26 and 27, his own personal discipline as an apostle. As a matter of fact, if you write in your Bible, you might put a bracket beside verses 24 and 25 and write the one word athletes next to it. And then a bracket by verses 26 and 27 and write the word Paul to remind yourself of what's going on in this text. And so we start into verses 24 and 25 where Paul uses the illustration of athletes who discipline themselves to win the prize. That's the first blank in your notes, to win the prize. Paul illustrates the need for believers to be disciplined spiritually through the physical arena. The physical arena. When the Corinthians received this letter from the Apostle Paul, I want to suggest that they would automatically think of a competition known as the Isthmian Games. I want to give you a few reasons why I think that. I think there's language all throughout the paragraph that would make them think that way, these Isthmian games. One of the words would be the word disqualified. At the very end of the passage, verse 27, disqualified. That's a word that would be used often in that sort of setting. But another word I think that would really help us or would, would, would trigger in their mind that he's talking about the Isthmian games is the word race in verse 24. Look down at verse 24, and you see that word race. And I'll give you the Greek word here. I don't normally do that, but the Greek word is stadio. Stadio. When, hear, when they hear that word, I want to suggest that they'll think of the stadium and the Isthmian games. also think this because of Corinth's proximity to those games. Just outside of the wall of the city of Corinth is where these games would be celebrated every two years. I want to tell you a little bit about the Isthmian Games so we can understand what's going on here. The Isthmian Games were broadly celebrated and attended during the first century AD. These games were second in importance and uh, popularity only to the Greek Olympic Games. They would occur every two years just outside of the city of Corinth. One commentator and historian actually uh, was able to demonstrate that these games would occur on every odd year from A.D. 3 to in the, the 60s A.D., and that he believes they only missed one time in there. Okay, and so in the year 3 A.D. and 5 and 7 and all throughout, these games would occur just outside the city of Corinth and it would be a way for people to participate and be athletic competition there. 
Well, we know Paul the Apostle was in Corinth in 51 AD, so he may have been there for these games. And we also know that he returned back there in 57 AD, which, by the way, this would be a great place for Paul the Apostle to be because you can imagine where people, where guests would live during those years and during those games. Where do you think they lived? They lived in tents just outside of the city of Corinth, on the plains outside of Corinth. And why would, why would that be a good place for Paul to set up shop? Because he's a tent maker. When Paul uses language in this passage, he's recalling these games and he's highlighting the athlete's diligent efforts. I think he focuses primarily on two things when it comes to these athletes. First, he wants us to observe their self-control in verse 25. Look at verse 24. It says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? They can visualize this. But only one receives the prize. Only one's going to get it. So run that you may obtain. Every athlete exercises self-control, self-discipline in all things. The first thing that Paul would have us consider is the discipline or self-control of these athletes. We actually also have some information that tells us about how athletes would prepare for the games. For the games, each competitor would train for at least 10 months in voluntary personal workouts if they were going to participate in the games. And then in the last month, they'd have to come to Corinth, and the last month would be daily supervised, daily supervised working, you know, workout to participate in these games. If they did not do one or two of those things, then they would be announced by the herald of the games as having been disqualified from the competition. And so Paul has this picture in his mind, and he wants the Corinthians to consider the, the discipline and self-control of these athletes, and he wants them to apply it to their own Christian life. Another way of saying this is Paul wants the Corinthian believers to smell the sweat of the games and to think that the Christian life also includes discipline or self-control in the all things. Be kind of like me showing a video. I almost did this, but I knew it would be a little controversial. A video of Steph Curry's off-season workout program. The reason to be controversial is because I know some of you are probably Cavs fans. And so I didn't want to unnecessarily offend you this morning. If I were to show you the dribbling drills that he does during the off-season, his intense core workouts, his shooting thousands of shots, his strength training, and then say, you know what, as you watch this video, just think about if you applied the same amount of discipline to your own Christian walk, what that would do. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, look at the games. Look at the competitors, those who win the prize. They give. They discipline themselves. They struggle. And so he says, notice their self-control. But then he also says, well, notice their reward. They're doing it for a reason. Look at the end of verse 25. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So the grueling commitment of all these athletes to participate in these games was not without its motivations. 
These runners diligently prepared to receive a perishable wreath. Okay, and I know we've had a lot of background information about the games and so on, a lot of historical information, but I got just a little bit more for you. One of the things that helps us in this text is, is a study or field of study called biblical archaeology. If you've got any questions about it, you can ask our very own Mark Hassler, an Old Testament professor, about it. He was just in a dig in Shiloh, I think it was. But biblical archaeology can help us because archaeologists have unearthed all sorts of different things about the city of Corinth. They've found stones, rocks, carvings, inscriptions, uh, paper, manuscripts, and they have found coins. Coins in particular can help us know a little bit more about these athletes and the crowns that they were working to achieve. You know, some of the coins from ancient Corinth actually portray the image of the victors of the games with a crown on their head. Or you have other coins like this one, this reproduction of a coin, that just give a picture of the actual crown itself. As a matter of fact, you know, you can actually bid on some of these coins online. You can bid on them online. They usually get quickly out of my price range. It's not my own self-imposed price line price limit, but it's the, you know, the price limit of someone who really loves me and cares for me. She's got longer hair, and, you know, she, she really wants the best for me, you know, but uh, you can bid on these coins. Well, some of these coins show pictures of this. Their wreaths were made out of pine branches or celery leaves, okay? So Paul is saying these competitors discipline themselves and they run so that they can receive a crown of withered vegetables. Withered vegetables. That was their reward. And Paul is using these athletic metaphors here so that we might then transfer our thoughts and observations into a different arena of life, our pursuit of knowing Christ. You see, Paul did not just watch an athletic competition without drawing parallels to the race that believers run. When he was at the games and he saw someone running, he thought of the race that believers run. When he saw someone fighting or boxing, he thought of the spiritual fight that believers were engaged in. And so this transition to our lives becomes very obvious in the text when at the end of verse 24, in verse 24, he says, so run that you might obtain. He's not saying, I want you to participate in the Isthmian games. He's saying, I want you to engage in your spiritual race, so run that you might obtain. Based upon the example of these athletes in the games in verse 25, he closes this way, but we an imperishable wreath. Our crown is so much better. So be disciplined in the way you run your life for Jesus Christ. The end, I believe, from other texts of scriptures, you can see clearly that Christians will receive reward or disgrace at the judgment seat of Christ. I personally believe that all believers will receive something, be some fruit or some reward, but that God will give incorruptible crowns to those of us as well who discipline our bodies to serve Christ. If you think a moment of the time at the, the Bema judgment, the judgment when we see Jesus Christ, to think about the irony 
of receiving a crown from Jesus. One day, in the very near future, the one who wore his own crown, a crown of thorns, so that we might be able to receive a crown, will look at us as followers of his and give us a crown that we will immediately cast at his feet. So as we look at this text, Paul is just compelling them to remember these things. A well-performing athlete should remind believers to be disciplined in their walk with the Lord. Then in verses 26 and 27, Paul moves along to his own example. His own example. Let's look in our Bibles again at verse 26. Paul says, So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know, when Paul went down to the games, when he went to the stadium, he wasn't just looking for good sermon illustrations. He wasn't just thinking, you know, the next time I write a letter, I'm just going to put something about these athletes in it. That'll really get people. But he was considering his own life. He's looking at those athletes. He's thinking about, like, what, what can I learn about my race for Christ? And so what we see in this passage is Paul talking about the own sort of self-control and reward that he experienced as a believer. You can see that very clearly because in this text, you're going to see the word I repeated over and over again. I, I, my, I, myself in two verses. And so Paul talks, first of all, about his own self-control in verses 26 and 27. And I would uh, summarize his own self-control with four important phrases in these verses. And you've got a, a gray box in your notes if you're taking notes that way. And I've got these four phrases in there. I want you to think about them for a second. Paul says, first of all, he does not run aimlessly. He does not run aimlessly. Like, He's not running as if he forgot where the finish goal or line was as a believer in Jesus Christ. He did not run how some of us run, with hesitation, or as a casual jogger. You know, well, what course are you going to run today? I don't know. I'm just going to get out there and run my two miles, and I'll just go wherever spirit leads. No, he did not run in that way. He had his very specific goal in mind. It says, running aimlessly. It says, that's, that's not how Paul ran. Did not mismanage his life or schedule as an apostle. Or engage in many off-centered pursuits that would distract him from the goal. I think Philippians 3 would be a parallel text you could write down. The goal of seeing Jesus face to face and knowing him. So I think what Paul's capturing here with this phrase, run aimlessly, is he's basically saying, I've, I've tried to avoid things that would distract me from the goal that I've set out in front of myself. And I think that that should confront us as believers when we spend hours and hours pursuing things that really have nothing to do with the goal. You know, so we, we spend entire evening shopping online for a dress or a skirt, or pants, or a scarf. I mean, you spend the whole night looking for a scarf. And not have time to pursue Christ. 
in the word. Paul says, I did not run aimlessly. Not running aimlessly. And then he says, I am not fighting as one who beats the air. Very good picture of the fact that as well, he's strategic. He's not one who would give all of this energy to, to flail at something only to hit the air in his spiritual life. Instead, he strategically served God as a focused runner and a disciplined boxer. He then says, third phrase, that he disciplined his body. He says, I disciplined my body. Here Paul is telling us that he forced his body to comply with his spiritual goal of pursuing Christ. When you get to this part in the text, you know, we become a little bit uncomfortable. Paul says, I disciplined my body. And then he says, and I kept it under control. I keep it under control. And the word for under control is a word that could be translated something to do with slavery. He makes his body a slave. Now, get me wrong. I don't, I don't think this text is Paul saying, you know what, when I sin, you know what I do is I go out there and I just hit myself. Or I beat myself. I don't think he literally did that. However, Paul is saying here that he, he as an apostle, was stronger than his own internal impulses and cravings to sin. He would not allow it, his body, to control him. This is what disciplined spiritual living looks like. Okay, now, every time I've ever preached on this passage, when I talk to people afterwards, when you get to this point in the text, most American Christians become really uncomfortable. Because it seems as if what I'm saying, and I'm just trying to say what Paul's saying, seems as if what Paul's saying is in some ways too contrived or too self-dependent. I mean, this is very strong language. I keep it under. I discipline my body. Let me answer that objection here for a moment, because you might be sitting in here today and say, you know what, Pastor Ray's just talking all about, like, self, like me doing really hard things, saying no to the flesh. Well, to keep proper perspective on this, I mean, I had every scripture reading I think we've done so far to be something about God's enabling grace for the believer. Like 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, you know what, I worked harder than all the other apostles. He got I there again. I worked harder than all the other apostles, but then right after that, it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Okay, so it is true in the New Testament that sanctification is a work of God primarily. But it's also true that believers have to participate with God in spiritual growth. In other words, we must cooperate with God's grace and his power to change us. I think that explains all the eyes in this passage. Why does Paul keep saying I? This is what I do. This is what myself. This is me. This is mine. 
He's talking about the way that he disciplined himself according to the grace of God that was given to him. And so I ask you, form of application here this, this morning, what restraints should you put on yourself? Perhaps in areas where you are weak or you often fall. You know, instead of just tuning out the sermon and saying, it's all about like personal self-discipline. Let, let, me, let me just encourage you encourage you to think about Paul's example. He says, I disciplined my body. I brought it under control. So in a few applications here, let me ask you, perhaps you are lethargic. I kind of talked about this a little bit at certain times in the sermon, but maybe you have a hard time getting out of bed in the morning. You know, that can be a serious physical and spiritual problem. I mean, if, if, if you keep pushing it off so long so that you, you don't have enough time to read the Word. That's a problem. You know, you start pushing, you start poking at something like that, and someone will say, you know what, I, I just, I just, I couldn't get out of bed. I just needed more sleep. My body needed more sleep. What would Paul the Apostle say to that? I mean, what would his point in this text say to the person that I'm enslaved to my body to do whatever it wants? Paul says, you got exactly the opposite. I bring my body under control. I make it a slave. Perhaps it's laziness in spiritual endeavors. There's some perhaps in the room who are content with the works that they performed when they were younger and are not pressing on in their elderly years. They'll say stuff like, that's something the young people should be doing at church. I did that like 30 years ago. When this church was planted now, and, and so they're content to be kind of an armchair Christian. What would Paul's attitude be about that? Instead of just sitting back and not engaging in the work of the Lord, Paul would say, be disciplined. Bring your body into subjection so you can serve Christ. Or maybe you are lustful and indulge in hidden pornography, or fantasizing. I find it very ironic and sad that Christians can hear a sermon about discipline and not even blink an eye even though they are failing consistently in moral areas. You just think for Pastor Brent, and you're just like, you know, it's a sermon or whatever, but it's not really convicting. Paul says, I discipline my body. I bring it under control. Perhaps you need to work harder than them all in this area, morality, and pray for God's grace to help you. Help you. Perhaps it's a lack of evangelistic zeal. This is something I call spiritual gluttony. Meaning you, you, gain, you engage in study after study of the scriptures, but you never tell anyone else about the gospel. So I ask you, when was the last time you were involved in evangelism? You know where you shared the gospel? You say, well, well it's been a while, because I just don't feel like it sometimes. What would Paul say? 
with that statement. I just don't feel like it. Paul's strategy would be, okay, what you need to do is you need to like put one foot in front of the other, and then, then when you get there, you need to like open up your mouth and share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You bring your body under control. I can't imagine standing before the Lord one day, standing before the Lord and have to explain why I went year after year after year without sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. May the sanctifying zeal of Paul inspire us to get up and get going in our walk with the Lord. But let me close by Paul. See, this text is completely parallel. Athletes look at their self-control, look at their reward. Paul, look at his self-control, look at his statement about reward at the end of verse 27. He says, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul gives us here one outstanding reason why living this way is important for him. He says at the end of verse 27 that he wants to avoid the danger of being disqualified. This word disqualified could be translated rejected, or he didn't want to be someone who fails the test. It's interesting to me that in the Corinthian epistles, when this word comes up again, at the end of 2 Corinthians, it's often translated by the ESV translators as failing to meet a test. I think what Paul's doing is he's, he's, he's still talking about his apostolic ministry, and he's talking specifically about the test of his apostolic ministry. He doesn't want to be guilty of preaching to all these other people and to fail to meet the test that God will place on his apostolic ministry. So Paul imposes discipline on himself so he does not fail God's test. At the end of the Corinthian epistles, he uses the same exact language to encourage the Corinthians to consider themselves. Every time on this handout, when I underline words, it's using the same word for disqualified in this translation. Let me read it for you. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says at the end of the book, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test, unless you are disqualified. I hope you will all find out that we, we have not failed the test. He's talking about himself and the other apostles. I hope that's what you're going to find out, that we didn't fail to meet the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, that, uh, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. May seem to have failed. In this text, Paul's emphasizing or calling for all Corinthian professing believers to examine themselves. To see whether they're in the faith. I think he's emphasizing an important lesson. I do believe that when you're saved, you always remain saved. But there's another spiritual lesson that especially the author of Hebrews, and I think Paul's teaching us here, And that is the idea of perseverance. And the idea is that all genuine or true faith will persevere to the end. It will persevere. So as we close this morning, 
I ask you, are you disciplining yourself in your race for the Lord? Are you cherishing Christ more than areas of indulgence that we've talked about? Paul lays out this principle using his own example to say, we must be disciplined in the choices that we make. Let's pray together. As we go to prayer, perhaps there are one or two areas of your life that you need to strengthen. I made some application, and hopefully it was obvious to you when I was doing that in the text. And uh, after preaching through a portion of the text of Scripture, it could perhaps be one of those areas, or maybe there's another area in your life that you need to strengthen. The Christian life is a battle. And as believers were called upon to strengthen, could you perhaps make a mental note of those areas? Their sin areas, confess them to the Lord and ask for wisdom and grace about how you might become more like Christ in these areas. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for what the scriptures tell us about your enabling grace. Philippians 2 says that you work in us both to will and to do of your good pleasure. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul made it very clear that he was what he was because of the grace of God that was in him. And so we thank you for your enabling grace, but we also thank you for texts like this that remind us that as believers in Jesus, we have an obligation. We just can't continue to indulge in the same sins over and over again. But we must allow the discipline and the self-control of athletes or the discipline and the self-control of Paul the Apostle to confront us. And may Paul's spiritual fervor get into us today. May we not just dismiss the passage or the sermon. Lord, may we look for one or two or three areas of our own life where we are presently failing to meet the test. And Father, would you give us wisdom and fortitude to serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.